Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Well, let's do another one. You set there ready? Oh, we've already started. started. Boy. What? Oh, hey. Yeah. Ah, turn your headphones on. Ah, ah. Remember, the title will get you right through there. <laughs> Got this. Brothers, sisters, siblings, welcome to Penn Sunday School starring Penn Gillette. My name is Mike Ledoux. Matt, Ben, Freddie, Rich, and I are broadcasting from Show Creator Studios South here in Las Vegas. Today we're having another conversation with First Amendment attorney and author of The Mind of the Censor of the Eye of the Beholder, The First Amendment and the Censor's Dilemma, our friend Bob Corbermere is in studio with us, and here he is preaching low, Mr. Pendulet. Okay, we're going to use that introduction every single time. <laughs> I always ask you for more. It time's out. Never just have perfectly. Yeah. Hey, just you do such a good job with that. You know? Thank you. After after uh, how long is it? Ten years. Yeah. You finally you finally found what you're good at. <laughs> it's this one introduction. <laughs> I'm going to travel around with Bob. Yeah. <laughs> well, I wrote the title just so it would fit. Thank you. It's so, so, so nicely. Uh, you know, um, we covered a lot of your, uh, the, the music stuff. You know, I've been reading a lot about uh, the comic books, too. Oh, yeah. And yeah. The, the, the comic books, you want to walk us through that because it creates Mad Magazine, right? And, it does. It ends up in a, having that <laughs> beneficial byproduct. And a Mad, Mad Magazine creates the underground comics. Yes. Really? That's right. All, they're all mad That's fans. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it was a, a weird byproduct of the Comstock years. As a matter of fact, the comic book panic ran from the mid-1940s through the mid-1950s, and it uh, resulted in a lot of political pressure. There were some laws, but they were largely invalidated. But mainly political pressure put on the main uh, comic book publishers that to essentially sanitize what they were doing. It's hard to imagine today just how popular comic books were in that period. They were a phenomenal publishing success beginning in the early to mid-1930s uh, and then leading on through the 40s. They published millions uh, of copies a month. Uh, people um, were, and, and not just kids. I mean, it was, it was really an adult medium as much as it was for kids. Uh, they had titles that focused on topics of crime and adventure and and um, horror comics and then superhero comics came out of that in the late 1930s but it began uh, in the 40s there was something of a backlash to it they started among others by uh, catholic organizations um, arguing that uh, superheroes were promoting kids to um, question authority and to um, believe in supernatural beings oddly enough uh, and um, so so, um, and, and there were others who thought that it was an anti-literacy thing. Um, but it really took off in 1948 when a psychiatrist named Frederick Wardham uh, started getting active in going after comic books, saying that they caused delinquency and crime uh, and uh, that uh, kids should in no way be exposed to them. Uh, now, the weird thing is that 
he debuted in a Time magazine article in 1948, the same day the Supreme Court struck down a New York law against dime novels, against uh, books that amassed stories of bloodshed and lust, which was something that had been adopted at the behest of Anthony Comstock to go after dime novels. So, in the usual narrative of moral panic, you have censorship happening until finally uh, the courts put an end to it, uh, and so on. But here you have, at the very beginning of this moral panic, the Supreme Court saying, no, here's the line for what the, the First Amendment prohibits. But that didn't deter um, Wordham. Uh, that's when his campaign really just took off. And he began to try and support local efforts to draft newer laws to go after comic books. Uh, he became very prominent in the area and, and uh, advocated for a federal law against comic books. Um, he published a book in 1954 called Seduction of the Innocent mm. uh, that was largely a collection of his essentially clinical notes uh, about uh, uh, patients he had interviewed. As it turned out, years later, we discovered from his notes that he hadn't interviewed the, the kids, that uh, a lot of them were composites that he put together, and stories from some of his colleagues and so on. And it, was the, a, it was a very successful book. Oh, it was highly successful, and it coincided with the uh, Senate hearings on comic books. And uh, so, ultimately, the pressure on the comics industry became so great that they adopted the comics code which was patterned after the Hollywood Code, uh, the Hayes Office. Now, what, what I was really amazed in, your book, I had always thought it was the, uh, the, the creep show, the EC comics that really got him going. I didn't know that, that the superhero stuff was also offensive to people. Oh, yeah, yeah. That, that was totally new to me. <laughs> yeah. Um, Wordham um, testified that uh, comics like Batman and Robin and Wonder Woman turned kids gay. Um, and that, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, the Superman... That's, untrue, that's just true. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, even a blind pig finds a truffle every now and again. But, <laughs> um, and, but, but that Superman um, uh, causes disrespect for authority. Uh, you know, all of this stuff, but that mainly crime comics uh, were laboratories of crime teaching kids how to be criminals and that uh, uh, horror comics uh, would scar them for life, uh, all of those kinds of things. And so, yeah, I mean, the EC comics were a driver of that, but uh, it wasn't confined to that. And it came out of the, um, uh, you said they, they modeled it on the, on the motion picture. Right, where you had essentially all of the major publishers agreeing uh, that they would not publish comics it, other than meeting these specific criteria. Everything had to be approved by a central office before um, uh, they would get their certification, the comic book code. And uh, seeing the pre-code movies are pretty amazing. You know, it is. Tarzan and his mate, yes. which has, uh, you know, topless and... Uh, and a lot of the Tarzan movies, I guess they were right on the border of the Hayes Code, right? They yes. Were, they were right there and causing it. But that seal, uh, uh, so complicated. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you could put out a comic book that did not have that seal. That's right. Like you could put out a movie that didn't have a rating. Right. But- what was the enforcement on that? Well, that's, that's where it gets so complicated. Well, it, it does in that certainly publishers have every right to adhere to a code if they want to and, and, and to 
decide what their own limits are going to be. But this was done with a raised fist. This was with the implied threat of government action. Uh, and that's one of the lessons of Comstock, because uh, Comstock used the law directly, and that's one of the things that caused a backlash against him, both in the development of the law and in sort of public attitudes. And so it taught further generations of censors they needed to act by indirection, by the threat of force to get the industry to do the job that they couldn't do directly and legally. And so you would use these backhanded pressures. The The Supreme Court started dealing with this sort of thing in the 60s when they would have, uh, oh, one of them, <laughs> the famous case, Bantam Books versus Sullivan from 1963, where you had the Rhode Island Commission for Morality and Youth that would go around to bookstores and give them lists of the books that they thought were just the kind of thing they shouldn't sell, they shouldn't make available. This would be followed by a visit from the friendly cop who would say, you still selling this stuff? Now, there was no direct prohibition against that. There wasn't a law that said you can't sell these titles, but there was the ever-present threat of government action. And uh, the Supreme Court looked, took a look at that, at that and said, no, this, this is the same thing as censorship. But variations on that popped up and existed in various ways. Uh, it did um, with the um, certainly the, the production code for film, as I mentioned, and then uh, with comic books. And that was the same kind of effort that was that went into the music labeling um, mm -hmm. uh, controversy in the 80s. So there have been various iterations of this use of government force by indirection uh, that uh, when the law developed so that censors couldn't found they couldn't operate as, as effectively directly tried to find indirect means of achieving the same thing. But if the um, the uh, uh, music code, the tipper stickers, yeah, if the tipper stickers were voluntary, why was there a Senate hearing? <laughs> that is the question, isn't it? <laughs> I was I'm confused about that then. I'm confused about it now. Well, and that was that was something that came up at the hearing, and that Frank Zappa exposed, yeah. right? Because uh, you had everyone in their opening statements at the hearing saying. This stuff is bad. We want it to go away. But this isn't censorship. We don't want censorship. No one wants to be a censor here. And then um, claimed that it was purely voluntary action. Uh, until when Frank Zappa described what they were proposing as a recipe for censorship whipped up like an instant pudding by the wives of Big Brother, uh, <laughs> the, the, the senators went absolutely nuts. And uh, one of the senators said, uh, you know, you give uh, the First Amendment a bad name. How, how can you say that uh, this voluntary action uh, is, uh, is censorship? Because this is voluntary. This isn't government. <laughs> and so it's, it was the sort of thing that he had his emperor has no closed moment. It was so, it was so weird. I mean, if they're fighting for something that everybody already has, I mean, I that's have. Right. I believe that's Congress at its best. <laughs> <laughs> Everything that is not in our show is prohibited by Penn and Teller. <laughs> that's right. Every single thing that's not in our show. That's right. There is an yeah. infinite number of things that aren't in the hour and a half you see at the Penn and Teller show. That's right. We are doing that completely voluntarily. That's right. There is every choice of word I make in the entire show, I am choosing that word and none of the others. That's, that's right. So you don't need the government to say that this private organization could decide to leave out whatever they want. I have that power. That's right. My power to leave out stuff is infinite. 
Right. For the rest of us, we call it editing. Uh, <laughs> when, when the government's thumb is on the scale, it gets a different. Yeah. It's just so strange that, okay, you want to do those stickers? Go ahead, do them. Maybe there's people that want to be careful what their children buy. What could be better than that? Put exactly. Catholic stickers on there all you want. Do them all you want. Why are we in this building? Exactly. That, that's the only question. What building we're in. If you want to get together and if, if David Copperfield and Penn and Teller want to say there's no mentalism in our magic shows and we want to put a seal that says that, good. Yeah. And then we, <laughs> yeah. we can hire people to police that if we like. Right. And, you know, if game makers or anyone else wants to have a particular rating system mm -hmm. to let people who are going to buy the games have an understanding of what it is they're buying, that's fine. Sure. It's just when it is coerced uh, by government action or the threat of government action, it becomes a problem. So now we have uh, Armageddon. We have, uh, we have the plague. We have <laughs> World War III. We have uh, climate change making probably the earth uninhabitable. Um, what's the big deal about censorship right now? <laughs> uh, the one thing we know is there's always somebody. There's always some asshole trying to push his idea through. Yeah, he knows better than all of us. Yeah. That's right. But where, where, what, what? That's a good business cases, to be in. What cases? Are you, what cases are you involved in now? I mean, what, what? Not, not necessarily what you're, what you're actually doing, but uh, what are the cases that are important? that deal with First Amendment now? Well, the big issue that's going to face the courts for some time is how to deal with the internet and social media and uh, the choices that they make. Just as you were saying that every word that goes into your show is something that you have chosen and every word you've excluded is something that you've chosen not to include. People are upset that social media platforms are engaging in those same kinds of choices in deciding through their terms of service what kinds of community they want to have in their social media group or what kinds of speech they don't want in their platform, what kind of speech they do, and so on. And there are lots of claims now that that's censorship. Well, the problem with that is, is that the social media platforms are not the government. And um, to try and compel them to have a different set of, of terms of service or different algorithms to decide how they moderate their platforms uh, is the thing that a lot of policymakers are interested in right now. Uh, but it is, uh, it's not censorship. But they're being, they're being backed into a corner yes. because the reason they aren't sued by everybody all the time, every second instantly, is because you will tell me what the ruling is that they uh, that they are not responsible for the content. They're yeah. just a provider. Yeah, you're referring to Section 230 of the Communications Decency yeah, yes, Act. Yes, yeah. And um, the debate has focused over that, and and the debate itself is polarized between the parties as to mm -hmm. how Section 230 should be changed. Um, and it, well, where do you stand? On I've been wanting I, to ask you about that. I think Section 230 is a pro First Amendment measure that is necessary for the health of the internet that the efforts to try and alter it um, are usually based on either misunderstanding or in some cases not such good intentions well i didn't really need you to tell me that because i knew trump was against 230 so i kind of had all the <laughs> that's, but so, but so, that's a more compelling but, but argument. so are progressives yeah, yeah, and, yeah but they are so for, for completely 
opposite reasons, right? Um, Trump is against 230 because it gives platforms the freedom not to include him on their platforms, <laughs> which, right? <laughs> which, which they've used that. Yeah, and they have, um, which has caused some people to worry about the power of the social media platforms. But if, as you've said, you don't like their policies, don't use those but platforms. But we're, we're also seeing that work. We're seeing the, the free market work perfectly he's thrown off twitter and he starts his own bullshit company right it's called truth or something? yeah called truth and it's one <laughs> pre uh, prevailing rule well, if it's called it's, truth it's true then yeah, right right exactly uh the main rule they have is that you can't criticize trump or the truth platform is that a rule yeah that? yeah <laughs> that's great that's a place to start <laughs> Jesus. they have every right to have that rule yeah sure but that is that is that is working working out there. Is there it going is. to be any traction on the two thirds? Oh yeah, there are at least two dozen bills in in Congress right now to amend um, and alter in some way Section two thirty. What's interesting but is as soon as you alter it in any way, yeah. aren't there? I mean, a billion lawsuits that day. Well, there already are. I mean, there have been countless lawsuits trying to hold platforms available for the speech of third parties that they host uh, because they're the deep pockets in in most cases i mean many of the platforms are not but mm -hmm. the ones that people complain about so well, much yeah, are twitter and facebook right, right. And, and so uh there are myriad efforts uh, many ambulance chasing lawyers out there going after the big fish uh, and uh, bringing these cases. And if Section 230 were amended, um, depending on which amendment you're, you're talking about, you would see many more of them. Mm -hmm. And are, do any of them win? Well, the, there are some that are going in, in both directions at this point um, because it's still sort of in a state of flux, both the interpretation of Section 230 and then subsequent legislation like FOSTA, um, which uh, was created some exemptions to, to, to 230 um, immunity. Uh, but we, we should back up a little bit just to give a basis for why mm -hmm. it is important to the Internet. And it's because for the first time in the history of the world, the Internet created a platform so that everybody could have a voice on a global medium. Uh, they could get information from all myriad sources out there. They could also uh, voice their views. They could find like-minded people and so on. And, and you know, it is out so many of those like-minded people are in the clan. Well, that is... <laughs> <laughs> that, 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 that is one of the drawbacks. Yeah, it sure uh, is. Because uh, it used to be you had a dipshit in Boston who was racist. He went out with his friends and said his shit. And they said, shut the fuck up. And that was kind of it. Now, within 15 minutes, that guy could be talking to a grand wizard. Well, that's right. That's right. That's right. And, you know, everyone being able to talk to each other, there's good news and there's bad news. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Because yeah. when so, we thought that was going to be a good thing, yeah. we thought, oh, it'll be people talking about chess. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but it is. Yes, I mean, it is. The, the things that make the news are, you know, some of these negative manifestations. But think of the ways in which this communications medium has transformed people the way- People who want to breed gigantic Angora rabbits. Yeah, someone else to talk to, <laughs> and and they have political power. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but the, the the theory behind Section Two Thirty was that if you hold the platforms accountable for everything that is out there, con considering the fact there are millions of posts per minute, right? Will they take a chance? Is that number low? It must be billions. Oh, oh yeah, I'm sure it's billions. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and I I had looked at the figures for. Um, for YouTube, uh, you know, and it's something like 80 hours of, of new video every minute 
or something like that. It's, it's, yeah, it's ridiculous. Yeah, it's, it's just amazing. And if you and whatever you just said has also changed. That's right. And exactly in the time that it took me to say yeah. it. And so you know, if if you have if you hold the platforms responsible for all of this third party speech out there, which is what makes the internet what it is, mm -hmm. uh, who's going to take a chance on that? Uh, and if you require them to moderate it in some way uh, and hold them accountable for their moderation decisions, they're not going to take a chance. So all of that third-party speech gets limited in certain ways. But uh, when you say all of it, you mean all of it. Well, I mean, is there anything so innocuous that you could go through it and be sure you wouldn't be sued? Well. <laughs> Can you be sure you wouldn't be sued? I, I love that question. <laughs> well, no, I mean, <laughs> you, know, you could sue whenever, anybody for Whenever a client comes to me and says, can I be sued if I do X? The answer so, to that yes. question is always yes. Always yes. yes. You can sue anybody for anything, That's anytime. Right. I know that and I've been taught that. What I'm saying is if you were in charge of YouTube and you didn't have 230 and you were going to put a panel together to look at the video coming in, how long does it take you to look at each two minutes of video? Well, it's impossible. It was impossible in a human scale. But even with, um, you know, machine learning and, and mm -hmm. with attempts to moderate using algorithms, uh, you're still going to have to assume the risk that there will be mistakes. And uh, so it, it will make the platforms extremely, extremely risk averse. Now, some of the legislation has tried to focus on, okay, just this really bad stuff that we know about is the stuff we're going to exempt mm -hmm. from the Section 230 immunity. But typically, it is so poorly and broadly written uh, in terms of those exceptions. But uh, are you, that sentence surprises me from, from you, because I would think that not poorly written wouldn't be your problem, but impossible to write would be your problem. Well, yes, I, I was giving them some credit uh, <laughs> but, uh, but but, but I mean, yeah if you were given the task with any brain power you wanted uh do you think it is and, and you had everybody behind you do you think it is possible to craft legislation that would accomplish what it needs to, what, what you would want it to accomplish Say you're the complete arbiter. It's not the sloppy writing. It's the very idea of trying to write it, isn't it? Well, you never know until you try. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> Just turn in a draft. But that's essentially what's happening, this sort of trial and error kind of approach. Uh, in 2018, Congress adopted a, an amendment to Section 230 and some other changes as well in uh, a bill called FOSTA. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm part of a group that's challenging its constitutionality. That's been pending for some time. But it was designed to prevent sex trafficking and designed to prevent facilitating prostitution. Uh, the effect that it's had is to make uh, sex workers less safe. It has not had a measurable effect on trafficking, the claims of politicians notwithstanding. And it is really difficult to understand and implement. And it is being used as a way for private civil litigants and some government entities to try and put the squeeze on platforms. It's caused uh, some entities to prevent having any kind of personal uh, ads or services whatsoever. Uh, it has had a huge chilling effect. And that's a narrowly, in the scheme of things, in the grand scheme of things, a relatively narrow exception that was created. Uh, some of the ones that are pending now are, are less narrow, and they're continuing attempts to tinker with it. The worst of them have what I call the scariest thing in Washington, bipartisan support. 
uh, <laughs> and, um, and so you really have to be careful about those. But largely, uh, the support for the changes in the law are polarized in the same way that politics are. In that, if you remember <laughs> another of my favorite uh, policy proposals, network neutrality. Mm -hmm. which was uh, a hobby horse of the FCC, and it probably will be again, um, trying to prevent these Internet players uh, who have control of the networks from discriminating different kinds of content. They can't have rules uh, to do that because they are, it's a requirement for freedom of expression. Uh, liberals championed network neutrality rules on the theory that you can't trust these large corporations uh, to have control over this. Uh, conservatives largely opposed it, saying it was a uh, an effort at censorship and in giving government too great a control over the internet. But if you look at the proposals to monkey with Section 230, you see those rationales completely flip. You see um, proposals from the progressives, from the liberal side, saying that we need to create incentives to have these platforms online Ha exert greater control over what you can say. We want them to stop hate speech. We want them to stop information. We want misinformation. We want them to stop uh, anything having to do with sex or trafficking. On the other hand, you have the conservative proposals saying that we want to have free speech online. We want to make these platforms common carriers that have to carry everything. They can't have their moderation rules or they're going to have moderation rules under conditions that we set forth. Uh, both sides uh, are equally wrong, uh, and and both sides are, I think, equally dangerous. It feels like a new thing to me, but judging by your book, it's probably not. <laughs> um, how much does alleged, false alleged trafficking and false alleged child predators hurt the actual effort of actual trafficking, uh, try, trying to stop the actual trafficking and trying to stop the actual uh child sex predators? Well, there are a couple of ways. One is um, when you had um, some of the services, uh, uh, online classified ad services uh, like Backpage.com still operating, what they would do is cooperate with law enforcement when they had leads on trafficking. They would testify on their own dime in courtrooms across the country uh, to put the actual traffickers in jail. They also had moderation rules where they try and weed out um, some of the uh, the egregious uh, trafficking ads. Uh, now that's completely gone, and you've had law enforcement, while they don't like to admit it publicly much, but uh, some have gone on record, saying they find it much more difficult to actually prosecute traffickers because they no longer have that cooperation. And the other part of it is uh, in terms of the, the lives of sex workers. And keep in mind, uh, sex work has been lumped in together with trafficking by some of these uh, proposals. And yet there is lots of, quote, sex work that is perfectly legal under the, states, under the laws of every state, whether you're talking about massage services or stripping or um, uh, dominatrix services. Keep going, keep of, going. Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> you, you can make a long, long list be before you cross a line <laughs> into proposed illegal sexual services. But those kinds of ads uh, have been eliminated uh, in, in many cases. And you also have sex workers now finding it more dangerous because they have gone back to, you know, the, the, uh, soliciting on the street or, or ways of, of generating business that are less safe. What, one of the things that FOSTA has done is eliminated the ability to have, quote, bad date websites 
that warn other sex workers about things that are dangerous and, mm -hmm. you know, people to avoid. Uh, so there are a lot of ways in which it has made the, that kind of work less safe, uh, and it has undermined law enforcement efforts to uh, actually prevent trafficking. We're doing this uh, bank show because uh, Penn and Teller are in Australia. We are down under. And while we are down under, Michael Carbonaro is playing the Penn and Teller Theater. So if you're in Las Vegas want to see a really good magic show, go see Michael Carbonaro. While you're listening to this one, keep in mind that my book is coming out. Random is coming out. It's also got a chap book with it that's four short stories, and you can get dice. You can get it all in advance. If you're a Patreon follower of Penn Sunday School, you get enough money off to pay for your whole Patreon. You get a little, little bag for your dice. You get dice with my name on it. You get a signed, autographed, both. Both signed and autographed hardcover book of Random, my new uh, my new novel, and you get a chapbook of short stories. It's not going to be available anywhere else. So uh, do that and do it now. Go to Patreon.com/slash Pen with two ends, and they can get any sort of tier they want. Yep. and that allow them to get my brand new book. Yes, Random in hardcover and autographed with a chapbook. Look it up. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Do you want to talk at all about the Sarah Palin case or is that just totally uninteresting? <laughs> I mean, it, it's pretty clear what's going on there, right? Mm -hmm. Well, tell me what you mean by that. Well, I mean, uh, the New York Times made a mistake. Yeah. A uh, pretty big mistake and um, corrected it and reversed it as quickly as they could. Yep. And uh, her case, as I understand it, is uh, no, you you, you knew this and you attacked me and uh, you no, shouldn't be allowed to do that. Yeah. Well, I, I think that uh, both the judge in the case and the jury reached the right outcome mm -hmm. to say that uh, Sarah Palin was not. And the, the judge did that weird thing of saying, you're going to make your decision, but if you do... What would explain that well, to that, us? Well, that, that, well, that's part of the really interesting development here. Uh, and it happened more, you know, once but twice. I mean, the first time the case was before Judge Rakoff in the uh, New York court, he had testimony from the editor before he issued his decision dismissing the complaint. And that went to the Court of Appeals. The Court of Appeals decided, no, that procedure didn't get it quite right because you don't hear part of the evidence and then dismiss the case. If you're going to have a summary judgment action where you listen to evidence both sides, do that. But that procedure doesn't work for us. So it went back and went back for trial. Um, they um, had the testimony at the trial and everything. And then and when the jury went to deliberate, Judge Rakoff announced in court out of the jury's hearing to the lawyers, said, I, I know you're going to be appealing this. Uh, you should know that I'm going to dismiss the case. Um, because I didn't think you met the actual malice standard for defamation and so on. Between the time he made that announcement and before the jury came back, some of the jurors got wind of the fact oh. that that announcement had been made uh, because they had their automatic breaking news uh, now, is items that on the Is that something that, how odd is that for the, for the judge to say something like that? It's very, well, it's very odd. I mean, typically what would have happened is that he would have either 
uh, dismiss the case before sending the jury back to deliberate mm-hmm. or okay. after the jury that came back. That was the part I didn't know. It's just so- sometimes when they talk about these things, it's something that happens often we just don't no, know about. This, this was quite unusual, and it was almost as if Judge Rakoff was trying to see how many different procedural irregularities he could put into one case. But, <laughs> but ultimately, the jury came back and agreed with Judge Rakoff. And the question is whether or not they were influenced by the fact that they had heard about it. Uh, they insisted that they were not influenced by mm-hmm. it. But uh, nonetheless, uh, Palin's legal team is seeking a new trial uh, based on the possibility that they could. And uh, But th- this all is taking place in the larger context of whether or not uh, the Supreme Court should change the standard for defamation as set forth yeah. in New York Times versus Sullivan in 1964. Mm-hmm. That's the actual malice standard, the case that many would say constitutionalized libel law. Uh, the, the question there is, um, defamation law is a tort. It's, it's like a car accident where you've injured somebody in some way. And the question is whether or not when that happens with words, there are First Amendment limits to how far a state can go in applying its law. Uh, in 1964, in a case involving a civil rights paid ad, um, uh, an editorial advertisement, whether or not that was defamatory. And that's when the Supreme Court said, um, no, the First Amendment limits how far you can take this, particularly where it is a public official, in this case, Southern Sheriff, complaining about people saying mean things about him, and, and he was saying untrue things. And in fact, there were some factual errors in the ad that appeared in the New York Times. But the standard, the legal standard for what causes defamation was set at a high enough level, and, and some would say a very daunting legal level of actual malice, to, tr- to show that the publication was made with the knowledge that it was untrue or reckless disregard of whether or not it was untrue. Anyway, that's the standard, and the question posed by the Palin case and that they would like to see changed, and two Supreme Court justices have, in opinions, indicated some support for, is whether or not it's time to abandon New York Times versus Sullivan. To me, it's akin to the the question facing Congress in Section 230. Mm -hmm. Abandoning um, New York Times versus Sullivan would be bad for many of the same reasons moving away from a policy like Section 230 would be bad. Now, since then... People have met that standard, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, didn't Johnny Carson have a thing with the uh, um, National Choir or something? Uh, Carol Burnett. Carol Burnett, yeah. yeah. So people have made yeah. that, uh, that, that, that level. Yeah. And do you feel that that level is right about where it should be? I think it should be. I think there should be a presumption that speech is protected and that if a plaintiff is going to use the law to punish someone, and particularly if that plaintiff is a public official, uh, then you have to have a very high standard. Now, what about the what about the Hulk Hogan? Well, that uh, that would be a public figure and not a, a public official. But mm-hmm. it's uh, the same thing. But it is an example of where someone in that category did prevail, and uh, in that case, put Gawker out of business. Yeah, and that was the money from Teal behind it, behind yeah. him, right? Yeah, and you kind of need that amount of money to. Yeah, but it's another example of how the rich will use or people who are connected will use libel law as a way to silence people in their speech about them. Now, you so know, you, you, you feel personally that went the wrong way? Yes. Okay. You feel that uh, that, that was used to take down Gawker? And- Absolutely. And there are other you know examples of where 
rich folks have tried to use defamation law in a punitive way, even if they know they're going to lose under the New York Times standard, they'll use it to raise the cost uh, of publishing and to basically because scare it, people off. Because it costs a lot of money to go to court. It does. Even if you, even if you win. That's right. All right, you convince me. I won't go to court. <laughs> Just ask Penn. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, not a uh, you know. I uh, everybody. I I mean the the cost of going to court um, emotionally is unbelievable. I watched Al Goldstein, who was a uh, you know crazy person who could put up with any amount of stress yeah. and still feel he was right and not be bothered by anything. I watched him go up against, uh, it, it was the um, Nebraska case, right? The Screw Magazine being mailed. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I watched him uh, go through that, you know, uh, saw the aftermath of it. It wasn't actually around then and uh, around in his life then. And um, it was phenomenal because he had the money. He was crazy enough to not be bothered by it. I mean, you you were around when the, when the, when the, when I was in that weird court case. Yeah. The, the deposition when I was in, right. completely in the right, and I had money behind me, mm -hmm. <laughs> and I uh, I was being covered in every way possible. Still ripped me apart, and that was one day. Yeah. Uh, I don't I don't just don't know how people put up with it, but I watched Randy go through his case with with Uri Geller. And it's just the the cost of going to court is emotionally unbelievable. And yet, there are people that I know personally that aren't bothered by it at all. <laughs> they can just be in lawsuits and not be bothered. And we've certainly seen Trump sues everybody all the time oh, yeah. and doesn't seem to you know, have any emotional investment yeah. at all. Well, you see people in that category sue as part of a press strategy, mm -hmm. right? It's, you know, they don't put or at least no, it doesn't appear that they put any thought into whether or not they'll prevail. The whole point is to make your public statement and to raise the cost for the other side. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's no way around that, is there really? Is there? I mean, except to have no libel law whatsoever, right? Well, yeah, well, but that's we, not we really come back I mean, to anybody can sue anybody for anything. Well, they can, but I mean, consider if, if someone simply started putting posters up in your neighborhood saying you were a pedophile. Mm-hmm. Right. I would want libel law to exist sure. <laughs> for a situation like that. Mm -hmm. And and so, you know, it is, it's hard to deal with the fact that, and particularly if you are a public figure, deal with the fact that people are going to say shit about you. Yeah. It's pretty clear that once you've, once you've been on TV, there's, there are whole avenues of protection that are just taken away from you. Yeah. And I, that's the way it has to be. Yeah, I mean, there's really it's it's arguing with reality. I mean, uh, if you go on Twitter at any given moment, me who's totally insignificant, and not political, there are things said untrue about me all the time. Yeah. You know, I, that's just that's just the way it's going to. That's just yeah, in your neighborhood. You're trying to drive up the cost of printing. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and this comes back to that whole question of how we cope with a medium where anybody can speak to a global audience all the time. Mm -hmm. Of course, there's going to be more defamation in a world that includes that technical capability. The question is how we cope with it. And it, it goes again back to that question of how do we equip ourselves as individuals to deal with that reality? Well, you know, that is, that is something that uh, when you have uh, anti-maskers, when you have anti-vax 
people. Right. Uh, when you have all the stuff that happened with Trump. Yeah. When you have January 6th. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you have all of that. For someone who is a uh, free speech nut, which I guess I won't call you, <laughs> but I can certainly call myself that. And you, I will say advocate. Okay. <laughs> a, a nutty advocate. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, do you still believe, I guess I'll just ask this question right out. Do you still believe that the answer to bad speech is more speech? I do. Um, let me put an asterisk on that going in, but let, I will say that I do. And, you know, you can look at a couple of recent examples of that. I mean, one is if you look at the Charlottesville riot in in. 2017, where very tragically, a young woman named Heather Heyer was run over by one of the uh, white supremacist uh, activists on the other side. And you had widespread violence in the city, as it turns out, largely because of an inadequate police response. But that's a whole nother part of the story. But you'll see people point to that and say, how does more speech solve that? Right. You've got a riot going on. You have white supremacists whose rights are protected to speak in a public space. Uh, You're not going to persuade them they're wrong. So how does more speech help? And the answer to that is that you're not looking at what happened in isolation in Charlottesville. You look at the overall response to that. Uh, The marketplace of ideas is something that doesn't happen instantly, like an instant pudding. It's something that is a process. And so if you look at what happened the week later in Boston, where the uh, anti-white supremacist activists were out in force 800 to 1, uh, and there was adequate police presence, both sides had their say. Um, But you also saw how heavily weighted uh, the movement for social justice was uh, in that circumstance. It's over time that you see that. Or take an example like the Westboro Baptist Church, those insane cult-like folks from Kansas who believed that all of America's ills stemmed from the idea that we were too tolerant of homosexuality. So they protested at military funerals with hateful signs saying things like God hates fags and things like that. Well, Is more speech going to persuade them they're wrong? Well, that's not the question. The question is, what does more speech have on the populace at large when they see what's going on? First, they're not persuaded by those nutcases. You didn't see the fact that we tolerate speech like that, loony as it is, slow down the movement toward marriage equality. Uh, We didn't see it. I can't imagine a person looking at a demonstration like that and going, hmm, Maybe they have something there. And instead, the counter demonstrations to their ugly displays turned out to be infinitely funnier and and more persuasive. So I do believe... This guy's an asshole. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> that was the best sign ever written. <laughs> yeah, ever. that's, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Or actually, a terrific sign was when Fred Phelps, who was the patriarch behind the Westboro Baptist Church, uh, died. You had people lining up across from the cemetery where he was being buried with a big banner that said, we're sorry for your loss. I know. Well, you're going to make me cry now. <laughs> I mean, it's just, no, that's it, just it, so it's, powerful. It's really perfect. But the, the problem is, it is a process. It does take time. And it takes people with real fortitude to deal with the fact that there's a lot of hateful and hurtful speech out there. Um, but you don't make that go away by censoring it. The question I have is that... <sighs> You know, we do live in this world where we have instant access to almost an infinite amount of information. It's in the palm of your hand. You can look up anything. And the question is whether or not it really makes a difference, 
right? It, the question isn't whether we should have free speech. It's whether we as a people are up to it. <laughs> yeah. Wow. It's, it's uh, yeah. yeah. No. I'll go first. <laughs> <laughs> I'll answer uh, first. I think <laughs> when I pictured, and uh, I've known you long enough that we were talking about picturing this, when we pictured the utopia we live in now, with uh, everybody having a voice, uh, what I was unable to picture was the narrowing down of information that comes with the expanding of information. Yeah. We now know that there are people uh, who uh, have no doubt that, the, that there is a pedophile ring run in the basement of a pizza place and don't ever see anything that contradicts that. And I'm not just talking about people choosing where their news comes from. I'm talking about something that's even more cloistered, where you've got people um, even living in communities like that retirement place in Florida, whatever that's called, the huge biggest place in the in the in the world i think for retirement where they had the the guy yelling white power and the trump rallies and stuff but all their neighbors and all their news and everything is coming from a very small number of points of view and when you talk about more people being convinced uh i mean your example in charlottesville is is perfect followed by the Boston thing, I still worry about the people who get sucked into that and stay in that. I mean, it's remarkable how quickly, because hate makes money and because being aggravated is better for business, all the algorithms really are driving us crazy. It turns out that the marketplace of ideas, the weakest link is people. Yeah. You know, it, this whole question of the broadening of information out there and the narrowing of what we're exposed to, in the oldie, old-timey days, uh, it used to be we had three networks and they were moderating the information. Mm-hmm. And, and certainly there were folks with mimeograph machines in their basements cranking out all kinds of loony tracts and so on, but they didn't have the same traction as those who came through the more curated and moderated. Uh, but also, the, the thing that's so weird is something I would have never thought of, which is the aesthetics. Text from the New York Times looks identical to text from the basement. Yes. It pops up on the exact same screen. Right. And the psychological impact of that is phenomenal. And now, with cell phones, you really get video that's produced just as well by a 14-year-old as by a network. Right. That's, I mean, that's all the YouTube stuff. Yeah. 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 That makes pro. That's really true. And, you know... it, it suggests to me that there isn't sort of an external magic bullet solution, mm-hmm. right? That you can't have a way to wave your wand and eliminate the fact that that technology exists, that we live in a different media world. What we have to do is equip ourselves in some way to differentiate between what is better information than worse information. The solutions, the only things that have made sense to me, and I don't know how you implement it or, or what the long-term solution would be, but we really have to focus on media literacy, civics information, and history. We have to really improve our education in all of those areas, and particularly on the critical thinking and media literacy uh, part of it, mm-hmm. so that people have the ability to evaluate 
uh, their different sources of information. That leaves open the question of whether or not they'd be inclined to, right? A, a certain percent of their population um, is not going to be, as polls have shown that a third of the population can't name the three branches of government, mm -hmm. okay? Uh, would they be inclined to learn? I don't know, but we've got to teach them. We've got to find a way to focus our education on those things that matter. And, you know, there's no way to contain that. I mean, the virus, uh, nothing has taught us more beautifully how, how completely we are connected. Yes. I mean, you were a very early adopter of COVID, as I know. Yeah. <laughs> I was. Uh, but well, I like to get out ahead of things. COVID went around the world like that. Yeah. And as much as I knew we were all connected, as much as I knew we were not just one species, but almost one organism, COVID taught us, man, six degrees of separation is yeah. about five too many. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we are right there. We are all the same right away. Right. And we also found that, um, that you choosing to not be vaccinated and you choosing to not wear a mask um, has implications so far beyond you. Yeah. I don't, you meeting in general. I, yes. Uh, <laughs> please. Yes. I'm so sorry. Yeah. <laughs> one. Yeah. One I, choosing to not yeah. wear. I that. wasn't an early adopter of COVID by choice. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that could be very confusing. Yes. Let's make this very clear. You're not an anti-vaxxer. <laughs> that's right. You're not an anti-vaxxer. That's, that's right. <laughs> um, but that that is an individual choice. The difference between not being vaccinated and not wearing a seatbelt are really profound. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, this goes to that point about whether or not I should be optimistic or pessimistic about how people will adapt. Because here you have a real-world, real-time experiment on how people are going to react to the information they're presented with in a world in which there's a ton of misinformation and all kinds of people taking different positions for a lot of different reasons. And notwithstanding that, we're at, what, a 70% vaccination rate? Yeah, a little, little below that. A little below that. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, I'd say single dose. Yeah, I'd, I'd say the glass is two thirds full. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, uh, boy, as someone who considers himself a, a, a pathological uh, optimist, <laughs> I, I, I think I have been I have been bettered. <laughs> I think you're crazier than me finding optimism in that. But uh, I, I just don't know. You know, I. I do know one thing, and I, I think that maybe I'd like to think I'm in the forefront. I found that when I got off Facebook, never for a moment regretted it. You know, yeah. the amount of time spent arguing at that level is not useful. It's not. And it's one of the reasons why I never read the comment sections after articles. Never. Nothing yet. Ever. Yeah. But I. There are people who hate tacos. And and just those people should just die. <laughs> See, now Godot's not going to read the comments from this episode. No, <laughs> I am not. But it is uh, it is very very interesting. I never thought I'd be in a position to have too much information. You know, yeah. when I had to ride my bike to the library to look up who Franz Kafka was because <laughs> Frank Zappa mentioned him on a record. I never thought that having too much information would be an issue for me personally. Right. You know, right. and I, I told you as, I, uh, as we were driving the car last night, um, I have to be very careful about what sources I read my news from. Yes. Because I realize that I'm not smart enough 
to remember four months later where I read something. Yeah. So I try very much to do that uh, <laughs> personal censorship of uh, picking my sources of what I read because I don't trust myself. Well, right. and, and that's one of the reasons why polarization is so destructive to the idea of trying to get a handle on what's going on and that people will say, oh, that's the New York Times, so I'm not going to trust anything in it. That's the Washington Post or vice versa or Fox. I mean, if, if you're yeah. from the other. That's going to come uh, even from your suggestion. Oh, we have to educate people uh, better at to become more skeptical of it. People are going to say, I'm not going to educate my children that way because that's what the liberals want or that's what the conservatives want. <laughs> and so the very even the suggestion that we're going to try to make you smarter so that you're better able to judge has a political leaning. Well, it will. I mean, it's, keep, keep in mind that all of this plays out like a Rorschach test. People yeah. perceive different things. Yeah. But if you can strip down the tools to be less ideologically uh, tinged so that you can tell them if you want to look through, if, if you want to be able to pick apart claims in liberal media, you need to understand these habits of mind or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, just as neutral as possible what the techniques are for trying to peel the onion and get at the truth. Um, you can apply it to whichever side you want, but I think what you come down with is what Jonathan Rauch has written in The Constitution of Knowledge. You would gravitate toward those that use processes of verifying truth. Uh, those that, and as you've said in, in the implication, Ben, of, of what you said about which sources you rely on, is you gravitate toward those, not because of their political orientation, but because they use proven professional standards. Well, I think the uh, the, ex the example of me writing, w w I mean, the, one of the best ways to trust the New York Times is to write for the motherfuckers. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody because, has to turn in an article. <laughs> because, yeah, right. because they bust your shit on everything. Yeah. I was quoting Allen Ginsberg, and they went to my source and said it was secondhand. Someone yeah. had reported yeah. that Allen Ginsberg had said that, and they couldn't find a primary source for it. Yeah. And I just kept working on that Saget article going, please, please let this be the way you're doing everything. Yeah. Please, please yeah. let this be. And when you do that to me, I no longer care about your political leanings. That's, that's right. I don't think I care very much about the New York Times political leanings because I know they busted me on a fucking Allen Ginsberg quote <laughs> that I fucking know is true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, it, anyone who's ever written a fact-checked article oh. where you have to justify every claim. Motherfucker. Isn't it great? It gives you great respect for the process. Great respect for the process and also infuriating in a beautiful way. Yes. It's just beautiful to go, okay, yeah, I, I don't know that. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's, you know, it, it, it's humbling in a way that uh, makes you feel like there's a system that's really beautiful yeah. there. Keeps you on your toes. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's a great. So you, you you bring us a message of hope at the time of Armageddon, and I'm so glad we got you on right now because if we waited another three weeks, there might not be a world to talk about. Yeah. Well, <laughs> there is that, or at least the map lines would be redrawn. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I think uh, thank you so much, Bob. And I thank I got to say this because we I I take for granted I know you so well, but you should look up Robert Corn Revere. You've written so much argued in front of the Supreme Court, argued 
in front of strip clubs with me. <laughs> uh, the, the book is The Mind of the Censor and the Eye of the Beholder, The First Amendment and the Censor's Dilemma by Robert Corn Revere. And you should, uh, it's, it's, just a, it's just a wonderful book. And you write so beautifully. Oh, On top you. of the information being there, it's also just a joy to And read. it's funny. And it's funny, yes, exactly. The Louie Louie chapter, unbelievable. <laughs> FBI guys listening over and over. Uh, that was Ben Sunday School. That was Ben Sunday School. Cha, cha, cha. And to our listening You become naked. <laughs> You know, that banner, we're sorry for your loss, instantly makes me tear up. Yeah. Instant. It was perfect. So it's the way, it's the way the world should be. Yeah. Even better than this guy sometimes. <laughs> Maybe not funnier, but better. And one of them, it was a guy standing at the sign next to one of those guys saying, this guy gives me a boner. <laughs> You know, we love you. Can we thank there, Matt Donnelly? Oh, yeah. People who make this show possible, loyal members of the congregation like Ovi Dimitrian Jr., Jeremy R. 22, Winter Wiekowski, Michael Cohen, Dr. Scooplittle, Joe Mastrangelo, Jeremiah Jenkins, Nate Soloway, Kelly Reeves, and last but not least, Jesse Miller, Alexander Hoffman, Danny Olwine, Julian Webb, Sean Magruder, Stephen Volcano, Jim, the Naked Magician, still selling the domain nakedmagician.com, Scooped Mids, and Paul McBride. Thank you all so much. I'd like to thank Bob for saying magic bullet solution instead of bullet catch solution. (laughs) (laughs) Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.